Yeah, the rocks weren't a problem. When he brought me over a path of broken glass, we had some issues, but he had Band-Aids at home. It was okay. No. We are going to talk about hiking this morning, so it's good that you brought that up. I'll just say a brief word about the college. If you are um, alumni from FGBI, Eston College, we are starting an alumni network, and we're hopefully launching that in the next four weeks or so, so please keep your eyes open for that. Uh, and and uh, if we have your contact information, if we have your email address, or you get Life uh, Publication, Life Magazine, or anything like not Life Magazine, uh, we don't call it Life Magazine, that's, an, uh, that's a different magazine, Aston College Life Newsletter, uh, then you will already have had some news about that, and you can sign up with us uh, if you'd like to connect with uh, other alumni from your, your period of time at the college. It's been 25 years since we've had an alumni association. And so we do want to reconnect with you, and we want to connect you with other alumni. We're launching our online courses on September 1st, and Josh Chalmers, who I understand was here just a couple of weeks ago, so I won't go into all the details about that because he already told you, he did a fantastic job with the team. There was about four or five people who have been working on it. And uh, I myself, I'm taking online classes right now. I'm working on on a master's degree. And I want to say that the classes, the courses that uh, the team at Eston, and we have a few people working remotely from Lethbridge and and Calgary, have put together, really beat what I'm doing. I'm jealous. So if you sign up for Eston College Online, you're going to be getting better classes than what I'm getting at my school, which is to say a lot, because I'm really enjoying my degree. Uh, And lastly, what was my third thing about the college? Is just that, yeah, we we are, we're doing well. Financially, we've got an awesome team in place, and we have a great plan for the next year. It's going to be fantastic to be able to host conferences again. We had a couple of years um, off, or like a year and a half off, as you know, because of of COVID stuff and and, uh, off of ministry trips and and things like that. And we kind of tried to pull some things together at the end of last year when we had that little window where things were open. But we're ready to have people on campus again. So I want to just throw open the doors to you, whether you have ever been to Eston or not. Uh, we have a number of college experience weekends, and, and any age can attend that from grade 10 up, and so grade 10 up to 90 years old. I think that probably is most people in this room right here. Uh, we would love to have you on campus if you'd like to visit us, and we are absolutely looking for the next generation of Nazarite-hearted, apostolic young people who want to get thrust into the harvest field and work with God to see our world not only impacted for him, because that's important, but at the core of all that we do is disciples making disciples who will make disciples and equipping people for that. So if you feel like that is you and that's your ministry, that's your heartbeat, um, we want to we send you further in that. We want to send you further in that. So I lived in Turkey for six years, and in the midst of that time, of course, learned a lot and, uh, and got to see the Lord do a lot of things, but also kind of dove into a couple of new hobbies. Because I'm, I'm a Saskatchewan boy, I grew up in North Battleford. And to get then overseas into Turkey, and if we, if we can get that visual stuff up, that'd be great at this point. To get over, overseas into Turkey, there was all kinds of opportunities that I didn't have before. And one of the ones that I, I, I most loved was that with another friend, Josh Rivers and I, he's, he's um, not from our circles, he's from the West Coast. We met in Turkey, but another Canadian. We started doing long-distance hikes. Turkey has, um, has been uh, launching these new long, long-distance trails up to about 1,000 kilometers, and I finished none of them. And so that's kind of too bad. But we did spend a number of nights on the trail and, and uh, started to learn how to hike. And so as we were preparing to come back to Canada, Josh and I planned our, our last hurrah. And we, we picked a trail called the Phrygian Way, which follows all these ancient roadways through central western Turkey, through uh, some, some abandoned cave cities, 
which are, which are somewhere between 3,500 and uh, 2,000 years old, most of them. And it goes through some old monasteries that are about 1,500 years old and, and up into the high plateaus where the shepherds take their sheep and, and down through the lower valleys uh, where there's just, there's nobody except for rabid dogs. I, I don't know, like there was, there was no real danger to us in Turkey except for these rabid dogs that we would just encounter on all our hikes. And we said, uh, let's do this one. And this, this was to be a, a three-day two-night hike. And in order to go on it, what we had to do is we, we went on this, this mini bus and we got on um, in the central city in the province. The name of the province is Afyon Karahisar, which means Black Fortress of Opium, which is just such an amazing name. Saskatchewan's great, but Black Forest of Opium is a pretty incredible name for a place. And we decided to go during the poppy harvest because um, in the fall, there's um, not only the red poppies that we're maybe familiar with when we think of in our mind, but these beautiful violet and, and, uh, and blue shades, white poppies as well that, that bloom all over the province. And that's where, that's where we get this, this black fortress of opium. There's a big fortress in the, in the center of the, of the main city. And then, and then they grow these poppies um, for medicinal purposes now, I guess, um, all over the province. And, uh, and we wanted to hike through it and, and see those things that I mentioned. And so this is actually one of the, these, these pictures, by the way, you'll notice I'm wearing different backpacks in them. Uh, this was, these pictures are from two different trips on the same trail. Most of them are from the one, the story that I'm telling you now. But, but this is actually where we, we camped on, on the first night. It was these, this old cave city, I already mentioned it. And we thought it would be an awesome idea to, to sleep in an old cave. You know, they had been set up as homes for people years and years ago, and it seemed like kind of a meet the Flintstones moment for us, and none of, none, neither one of us had done it. But I'm used to camping on thick prairie grass. I'm a pasture camper. So I've never slept on stone before, just bare stone. But we did that night. And, and I, I'm not, as you can see, I mean, you may, you may think that I am in peak physical condition, but I wouldn't say that I necessarily am. But I am, I'm built for the hike, okay? Like, I can go long distances. And that night, I, I slept kind of funny on my hip. I think I must have rolled over and just, it was just so hard, and I'm apparently not four years old anymore. My kid can sleep anywhere. He can sleep in any position, but I can't. And when I woke up the next day, I, I took my first few steps and thought, oh, man, my hip's a little stiff. I wonder if this is going to get better through the day. It did not. It objectively did not. My, my situation started to deteriorate over the next 10, 20, 30 kilometers. And by the second night, I said, Josh, we, we need to do something else. I'm not going to be able to complete this hike as we planned it, which was problematic because we were, we were about 60 kilometers from anywhere. So we ended up hiking into... Uh, to a small village where buses don't run, there's no public transit, no taxis, and, and long story short, we found the guy who was doing the milk run. He came and he got the milk from the local farmers and he would take it through all the villages and he was going to get to a highway where we could get out and either hitchhike or beg a bus driver to stop and take us back into town. And so we did that and we, we did have an amazing hike even though I was kind of you know, finishing it with, uh, with absolutely no mobility in my hip and my knee at the end. And, and we finally got back into town after all this. Again, we, we, it was the same length of hike, just uh, not in terms of time, not in terms of kilometers. And when we got there, the plan was just to go to the bus station and travel back to our province uh, of Antalya, where we resided. And so we get to the bus station, and, and in Turkey, to buy a bus ticket, you have to show them your ID. So I show them my residence card, and they turn it around and they say, this expired yesterday. We can't sell you a bus ticket. I was like, what? How did this happen? How did this happen? I've been living here for six years. I've done this application half a dozen times. How did this happen? 
And so they said, you, you should just go talk to the, the manager of the bus depot. So I talked to him. He says, it is illegal for us to sell you this. And actually, according to this, you're an illegal resident in our country now. And I was like, oh, how did this happen? So I quickly grabbed a taxi. Oh, and, and keep in mind, this is during COVID. So the bus schedule has been extremely restricted. And the last bus leaving town is leaving in about an hour. And so I quickly jump in a taxi and I go to the immigration office and I burst in and I'm sure they've, like, no, no Western people uh, live in this, in this particular province. So I burst in all dirty and hikey and, and wearing strange things with my big backpack and I flop down my, my visa and I say, is there anything you can do for me? He says, well, you can reapply. And I said, well, how long is it going to take me to reapply? The bus leaves in an hour. And he's like, well, you've done it before, don't, haven't you? He says, the same time as it does anywhere else, which is about a month. And I thought, I don't want to do this. And then I was like, well, maybe we can rent a car, but you can't rent a car without your visa. And not only that, even getting a ride back to town is problematic. Why? Because there's two or three check stops, police check stops on the way there. And if I'm found without my visa, I could get a cop who would be, who would be merciful, but I might get one who just has something against Canadians or against hikers or against extremely good-looking young men. And he would just throw me in prison. I wouldn't go to prison for it. I'd just be fine. But Josh said, I got to get home. He's got kids too. I've got kids. And, uh, and he said, uh, do you want me to stay? I said, no, you better go. So Josh got on, on the bus that I couldn't get on, and he left. And I was left there to try and figure out what to do. I had a deep and profound sense of longing for home at that time. I just wanted to get back, rest my hip, have a good shower, I just wanted to get back and deal with my visa problems. I just wanted to get back and make sure that there wasn't going to be another changing restriction and that's going to separate me from my family because we actually had seen that happen in a few provinces, uh, people getting taken into quarantine because they had been exposed to COVID for a couple of weeks at a time when they were just at a different place in their family. I just wanted to get back. And this feeling of suddenly being not at home anymore came crashing in on me. Turkey had become home. It felt like home. But as soon as my, my legal status was taken away and my freedom to move around in it was gone, I had that feeling once again, the same as I did the first day that I was there, those six years before, of being a stranger in a strange place. And our passage this morning starts exactly there in Hebrews 11. So you can turn to it if you want, Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. Pastor Kurt read it for us already in the video. And so I, I'm not going to read it all over again, but it would be helpful for you to have it in front of you because I will refer to it a number of times. Strangers and pilgrims, strangers and pilgrims, strangers and temporary residents. This is what, what this passage calls the faithful, the people of God in, in this world. And says that we are longing for a homeland. We are longing for a city to get to, a city that God is preparing for us. There is a sense that we are transitory. Now, it's an interesting thing because actually we were made perfectly to fit on this earth. He's not talking about being taken out of creation. He's not talking about becoming a disembodied spirit. He's talking about the world as it is now is not our home, that we have something written into the DNA of our hearts saying that things are not as they should be and we are not going to be at home no matter where we are in this world. And so if we are people who have been captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we are people in this context who, who are under the old covenant and had relationship with God before the coming of Jesus, then we have something that we are looking forward to, a city or a place or a state that God has prepared. 
These verses are actually an interlude in this chapter, and it tells, it's an amazing chapter, Hebrews 11, but it tells the story of, of men and women of faith and what they did, and it's the sweeping kind of overview of most of the Old Testament leading up until the time when the original hearers of this book um, uh, were living. But it's an interlude. And it says all these, it refers to the, all these who, who didn't see the promises fulfilled, who welcomed them from afar off, um, but, but didn't see them happen in their lives. The, all these referenced there are almost certainly just Abraham and his family. He, he zooms in on Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. Abraham was a long-distance hiker too. He started in, in Ur, which is in either Iraq or, or somewhere in southern, southern Turkey. We're not sure. There's a couple of different cities named that. And then he traveled all over the place, including Egypt, wandered around, and came to the promised land. He was somebody who God invited and called out of his homeland, but more than just his homeland, he called him out of the family business in a time when, when that was his only security. His father actually made idols. He was called out of his language group. I can only imagine going without the internet and having to learn a, or, or textbooks, the printed word, anything like that, even a guide, having to go from one land to the next. He was called out of the comfort of, of his own culture. He was called out of the comfort of, of his hometown. And he was called out of his ancestors' religion, the way of life that he had known and his, his uh, ancestors had known for, for as long as he was aware, at least, Everything that he knew was getting turned upside down, and it was for the sake of following a God who he had never seen, a voice that had spoken to him in the night, who he had come to trust as being the one true God. This is what Abraham and Sarah were moving into. But not only that, God promised him a number of things. God promised Abraham, Abraham descendants, but lo and behold, when, when he and Sarah started trying to have children, they found that they had fertility problems that plagued them well past the period of time where Sarah should naturally be able to have children. He was promised that his descendants would be rulers, would have this, this kind of political social power that comes with being rulers and kings. And yet whenever he went to a new people group, he found himself bumping up against the oppression of other kings. He was getting pushed around by the big guys, even though he was promised to be the, the father of kings and princes. And not only that, he was promised rest, but he lived the life of a nomad. He had to pack up his tent and move on again and again and again. And I know some people absolutely love that lifestyle. But I would think that because he was following the promise of God, that he was actually looking for rest. He was looking for rest. He, he didn't want to wander only. And Abraham and Sarah and most of his family died without seeing any of those promises fulfilled. And so the question that I carried when I approached this text is what does it do to a person to live in that tension of faith for that many years. Are there any of you who are carrying promises, whether they be promises from the Bible or things that have been spoken over you prophetically, things that the, the Lord has spoken to you in the quiet of the secret place? Are there any of you carrying promises that have yet to be fulfilled in your heart? And you can relate to the, that, that feeling of, of Almost the fear of disappointment. It's not even disappointment yet, but it's the fear of disappointment. Is God going to pull through? Is he going to come through on this promise? Is this thing that I'm expecting, I'm hoping for, going to happen? And what does it do to a person? What does it teach to a person when they live in that tension for an entire lifetime, waiting for the promises, longing for the city that's been prepared for them? And I want to suggest to you, from the reference that is made here in the book of Hebrews, that what it did to Abraham and Sarah is that it taught them 
that their home is ultimately not a destination that they can find in this world. And, and frankly, it's not a place that they are going to find even outside of this world. I would suggest to you that what it taught Abraham and Sarah was that home is a person, not a destination. That living in the tension of the unfulfilled promises, yet with faith that one day the God who promised will make these things happen, caused them to recognize God as their home, the God who drew them on the pilgrim's path, the God who would be the answer to his own promise ultimately. That's an interesting thing because when people are deprived of a comfort or something that they want, we typically fixate on that, don't we? Like if you've ever tried a diet, then all of a sudden deja vu cafe is just looking real good. You know what I mean? <laughs> but you don't, you don't think like, oh, I want to go out for just like as much heavy chicken that I can possibly eat and then like a big shake afterwards when your stomach is full. You're not thinking that way. You think that way when your stomach is empty. And it's interesting. It's the same as, as during the heat wave, just a, a big cold glass of water or Sprite. I don't know if they're Sprite drinkers, but I feel like I just need that on a really, really cold day. By the way, this message is sponsored by Sprite. Um, <laughs> you know. No, but just when, you, when you've been in the middle of a heat wave, especially anybody roofed? Anybody done shingles? Yes. When you're in the middle of the heat, it just, it, it reflects back up at you. I, I shingled a church in North Battleford when it was about 35 degrees out that day, and it was the only day that I've ever done shingling. It's my only experience. I assume it's better at other times, but it might just be bad all the time. I don't know. But it was, it was terrible. And so when you lack that comfort, when that comfort's taken away from you, your mind fixates on it. So I'm up there, I'm pounding shingles and just sweating it out and just fantasizing about minus 40 in December and and January and February because it's the opposite of what you've been deprived of. But this passage says this about Abraham and Sarah. If they were thinking about where they'd come from, then they would have had an opportunity to return. Now, remember all the things they left Behind, But now they desire a, be- a better place, a heavenly one, a heavenly one. The journey itself away from familiarity and from the known, from comfort, enticed them to rely on God in a way that they couldn't have possibly relied on God if they would have stayed where they were. This is what we learn when we move into the discomfort of becoming strangers and pilgrims. There's a second interlude two chapters later in Hebrews 13. It's tied to this one. We're going to look at it here. And it picks up that theme of a mini exodus or a pilgrimage. Except for this time, it's not the same grand sweeping scale as it was with Abraham and Sarah. This time, it just, um, the the passage referring, it starts in um, verse 10, talks about we have an altar from which those who worship at the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. And then it says, though, that this is outside the camp. Jesus, it says, suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go. Go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. Because we don't have a city here. We don't have a city inside the city gates. Instead, it says, leave the city gates and go out there. Seek the one that is to come. Seek the one that is to come. This language, um, this is very specific for the, for the, like I said, the first audience of the book of Hebrews. You've been in this series for a while, I know, so you probably already know this, but the book of Hebrews really in its scope is, is explaining to Jewish background believers, Messianic Christians we would call them today maybe, how Jesus fulfills all of the things that they had enacted through their salvation history. 
all of the rituals and the rites and the celebrations and the festivals that are, that are uh, a part of their way of life in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was fulfilled in Jesus. And not only that, he takes it a step further and he shows us things that we couldn't have expected. And Paul says that hadn't even entered into the heart of man, this is what God has prepared for us in Christ Jesus. The whole book is written to show us that. The whole book is, is meant to point forward and, and to give um, significance to the Jewish way of life that they, they hadn't seen before, that significance that comes from Jesus and that meaning from what they had done. And there was all kinds of people getting swept up in this Jesus movement. And you can only imagine what that must have been like to have this, this gospel message presented to you when up until that point in your life you were fighting to earn your salvation, to balance out the scales of righteousness and unrighteousness. And all of a sudden this breath of fresh air comes to you in Jesus Christ. And he says, not only that, I'm going to heal your souls and I'm going to heal, heal your bodies and I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you a new future and a new hope. But it came at a price. Because although the movement was amazing and, and lots of people were getting on board with it, there was also many who were not. There was many who clung to the old ways and didn't want to reinterpret what they had lived for their whole lives. They didn't, they didn't uh, in light of Jesus, they didn't want to go outside of the camp, so to speak. And so they were starting to become resistant. And the people who the book of Hebrews were written to were beginning to experience persecution for their faith. They were starting to get pressed down by the social pressure that was around them. It came at a price to follow Jesus. And so this passage talks about a journey from inside the camp to out of it. And that area of going outside the camp is actually an act of shame. It refers directly to it in this passage. Why? Because on the Day of Atonement, when all the animals would be sacrificed for the cleansing of the sins of the people of Israel, the Hebrews, the, the offal, the hides, the blood, and the guck that is from those sacrifices would be carted outside of the city and taken outside of the gate to be burned. They had had, these Hebrews, had had a visual representation of the filth and the shame that was their sin being removed from them and removed from the city. And the, the ones who had to do that dirty job would go out, and it wasn't entirely shameful because it was this religious ritual. But of course, if you were outcast, if you were outcast from the city, you would have to live out there where the dirty work was done. You didn't have access to the inner courts uh, um, of, of inside of the city. And the author says, this is exactly where Jesus goes. This is exactly where Jesus is. They say, if you grasp at the residency inside the city, you are going to miss being where Christ is. And like I said, Abraham and Sarah learned this lesson, and the lesson is the same from Hebrews chapter 13. Home is not a destination. Home is not a location even. Home is a person, and that person is God. And if you want to be at the home that you were created for, you have to leave the city gates. You have to go where it's not comfortable but you get to go, you get to go. What was Laura saying? You get to go outside of the city gates in order to find your home. So when taken together, these two passages of scripture paint a picture for us today about what this means. What does this mean then? If we are to go outside the city, if we are to see these promises from afar and instead of looking back at our life as it was in the rearview mirror, look forward to say, what is the heavenly place that God is preparing us? And so I just have three, three basic things that I want to share with you um, about this home being a person rather than a destination. Number one is that to find home, we must leave home. 
and this might be, this might be um, uh, intuitive to you, but the journey of Abraham and Sarah was a call to leave. They couldn't stay where they were. The journey outside the city is a call to leave. They couldn't stay where they were. I've heard leadership experts say that people won't embrace change until the cost of staying the same becomes lower than the pain of changing, okay? So I want you to just imagine a change that you've gone through in your life. When I talk about changing personally, whatever comes to mind is actually probably the perfect example. Most of us, 99% of us, are going to resist that change until a moment comes when, when the cost of staying the same outweighs the pain of changing. The pain of changing. So my question is, is the prize of intimacy with Christ... Is the prize of what he has prepared for you according to his will and purposes instead of our own will and purposes worth more to you than the comfort of staying the same as you are today? Are you willing to embrace change or does the pain of that change entice you to stay? I have a friend named Brent who was, uh, he was a YWAMer, did a number of years of YWAM uh, as a leader and as a student both. Then he came to Aston College, he got a degree there and then he even worked at the college for a few years. And Brent made a very courageous decision recently, at least one that I find very courageous, and that is he, he was on the track for full-time ministry. He wanted to do pastoral ministry or church planting, and he had done ministry for years. He had invested his whole, the first 15, 16 years of his young adult life into training and doing the mission of God and church work, but he came to the place where the Spirit of God was asking him to go be among the people in a greater way. He said, you know what? If you go into full-time ministry, you're actually not going to be able to do the evangelism that I'm calling you to. You need a trade. And you can imagine after all the sunk time and money and resources and, and, and sweat and tears and all those kinds of things to humble yourself and say, I'm going to start a new career now. This is a big change. And yet Brent turned around and he said, I'm going to become an electrician. And, and he, he started going through um, the, the process to become a journeyman electrician. He's just about done that process now. And what it has done is it has shifted his context. He still lives in Eston. He's still there, but he has made the decision to embrace the discomfort and go out. And like I said, I believe that that, that requires um, courage. And so for you and I, sometimes it is a move. So it was a move for us to go to Turkey. It was a move for us to come from Turkey back to Canada in order for us to, um, to, to find home, home being Jesus, to find Jesus. We had to leave our home multiple times to do that. But more often than not, it's just a change in your routine or it's some soul work that requires you to change the way that you think and the way that you act on a normal daily basis. It is, it is that, that life that happens outside of the comfort zone. That's what it means to leave home. That's what it means to leave home. Almost weekly, I get a call from somebody in, in ministry who uh, will call the college and want to talk to me or one of our other staff, and, and we're talking about the future, and this will inevitably come up. COVID has shaken us. And we are convicted that we can't go back to the normal that was before the pandemic. Have you guys felt this or heard this? Is this something that's happening in your hearts? A lot of people are saying we can't wait for things to go back to normal, but I actually don't think most people do want to go back. Or if they do want to go back, they haven't considered um, what that means necessarily. It's interesting, when I, when I have this, this talk with people, at least people who are in ministry, and they're saying, you know, our churches, our ministries, our families, ourselves, um, we, we, we're afraid almost of some of these restrictions changing because of the shaking that it was. It caused us to, to look up and depend on Jesus again out of desperation. We didn't realize we were on autopilot, but now all of a sudden we're, we're relying on him out of des, uh, desperation. And, and, and they say that this season has shaken us. And I always ask the question, so when did this start in your heart, though? 
When did the sense that you need to change or that something needs to change come into your heart? And you know what? I'd say honestly 90% of the time it was well before the pandemic. Well before the pandemic. What does that say to me? It says that the Spirit of God was drawing us out into this journey. The Spirit of God was drawing us out of the camps where we were comfortable, outside the city gates, to a place where there is an altar that nobody else has access to. He was already calling us to change before that began. And so, again, I would ask you this morning, what is the threshold that God is asking you to step over? What's the change that he's asking you to embrace? Number two, we will not find home in what the world system has to offer. I had a conversation recently uh, with a farmer, uh, a former farmer, the best, the best kind in some ways, or at least the, some of the most privileged. He was about 70 years old. He had just recently retired. And uh, he said, you know, I have, I've been working all my life so hard on the farm, scraping by, making sacrifices. And he said, I didn't, I didn't have kids or grandkids that I was going to sell the farm to. So I just sold the farm, and I'm off the farm. And he said, I sold my farm for $3.5 million dollars. I went from lower middle class, tied to my land, struggling to get by, to all of a sudden a millionaire, literally overnight. He said, what do I do now? <laughs> and so he does what his friends do. And he's going down to Vegas every year. He's going down to Vegas every year. He's doing what most sane Canadians do. And he's spending his winters in, in uh, Florida and, and, in, and in Phoenix and in other places that are just warmer. I personally love Canadian winter, and it was a benefit to come back to and whatever else. But he's snowboarding. But he said this to me, and it was really, really fascinating. He said it was much easier for me to stay on track with Jesus when I was poor than now. And I'm not saying that we should remain poor or that being poor is a, is a, is a virtue or anything like that. But what he said was, all of a sudden, he said, now that I'm a snowbird, so I go down south... And what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And I'm being confronted with temptations that I never had for the first 70 years of my life. And so I would say this again. The world is going to offer us many things that is going to make it more comfortable to stay in our camps and to stay in our homelands that God is calling us out of. Um, and it is going to make every attempt that it can to entice us to conform to its own image. We know this. And it doesn't take $3.5 million in a sold farm at 70 years old to teach us this. The average person is exposed to between 10,000 and 60,000 ads per day whose singular job it is to convince us that we can be satisfied by what the world has to offer. You're bombarded with this every day. And actually, the younger you are, the more likely it is that you're going to see more and more ads because of the way um, that uh, the people 15 and, um, uh, and under tend to live on the internet. So when the world offers us its best, what are we going to do? How are we going to respond? If you are offered an illicit romantic relationship with somebody who is irresistibly attractive to you, how will you respond? If you are offered, like I said, all the wealth in the world, but it would, it would require a compromise on your faith or a compromise on your morals, how would you respond? If you are offered the spotlight that you've maybe longed for or the, or the success that you've longed for for years, how would you respond if it required um, a, a compromise? How would you respond if you knew that you would have the, plat the ministry plat platform or the religious platform, the spiritual platform that you always kind of dreamed about, the impact on the world, let's say, or the purpose that you always thought you had, because those are spiritual words. But in order to do so, your heart would have to become vacant from the Lord, and you would have to move into a place of performance only. How would you respond? How would you respond? Or if you were, if you were already on the platform, 
If you were already on the platform and you started to feel your heart wander away from God, how would you respond? The world is telling us, and even our hearts, our flesh, tells us that we can be satisfied by the, by the things in this system. But folks, the message of, of, of this passage of Hebrews is to say that if you think of the city that you had left instead of the city that you are going for, you will have opportunity to return. That is a euphemism for saying you will walk away from this journey with Jesus. Do you hear that? There's a real danger in this. You will not feel at home no matter what you achieve in this world if you have not found home in the person of Jesus Christ. So will you find home there? Our home is a person, not a destination. So this is the last one that I'll I'll leave you with. Home is where the action is. And in other words, home is where Jesus is where the action is. Um, This passage ends with a therefore. It ends with a therefore. It says, therefore, let us not neglect to do good and to share with others. Let us not neglect to do good and to share with others. It also talks about this um, sacrifice of praise, um, the fruit of the lips that confess his name. God is pleased with such sacrifices, it says. Um, This is one that uh, Steve and I were talking about this last night, and I just want to share this as something that I feel on my spirit for you as a church. I, I am honestly so blessed and so humbled by what you do for refugees and for children. Those testimonies that I just heard this morning, this is incredible. This is incredible. Because when we were in Turkey, we saw how actually those two groups of people, refugees and children, it just so happens, were at, at massively vulnerable, but also massively open to the gospel. And so whether these people ever, ever come into your church or not, I really do believe that there is a call and an anointing on Hillcrest to move out into the parts of Mustra that are currently unengaged with the gospel and unengaged with the, the, the relief that comes from the kingdom of God, the service of the people of Jesus Christ. I believe that that is an anointing that you have that you can step into in greater measure if you are willing to do so in this season. But you are going to face a temptation, and it's the same temptation we all face. It's a normal human one, and that is to surround yourself with people that you're comfortable with. To surround yourself with people who are like you. To surround ourselves who think like us, who talk like us, who, who are in the same socioeconomic class as us, who actually like Jesus, like we do. <laughs> That's the temptation. But what happens if we give in to that temptation is that we insulate ourselves from the poor and from the needy and from the downtrodden and from the lost and from the broken. And this passage in Hebrews finishes its call and says this isn't abstract. In order to to move forward and make our home in Jesus, we must not neglect doing good and we must not neglect sharing with one another. It requires us to move forward. Church, finding our home in Jesus calls us to share the gospel with those who haven't heard to join social circles that we may not be particularly um, inclined to join, where we feel very uncomfortable, to welcome guests who are awkward. I love that. I didn't know that Steve um, was, and, and the Atkins family were just blowing open the doors to their house and saying, anyone can come. That's perfect. I, I hope that none of you fall into this category, but they had to have me last night, and I'm not always the easiest guest to have around. And so sometimes you just have to welcome guests that are going to be awkward in your midst. This is a part of what that call to do good and to share with others entails, and sometimes also to give what we would rather keep. I want to end with just one story um, uh, in this regard, a, a hero in this, in this particular arena. Her name was Raja. She was Jordanian. Raja was an Arab woman who 
uh, grew up in Jordan. She was a Muslim for most of her life. Absolutely incredible. Um, she was kind of a Hafiz, which means she had, she had memorized most of the Quran. She couldn't quite get it all, but that meant she knew it very, very well. She encountered Jesus and became a Christian in Jordan. And she had two alcoholic brothers who were living in an isolated village in northern Turkey along the Black Sea. It just happened to be a place where I was going on, on, on ministry with a number of our friends as well. And we met Raja, and she had no fellowship whatsoever. She was the only known Christian in that province. Only known Christian in that province. Didn't speak Turkish when she first went, and had to go live, like I said, with these two alcoholic brothers. But she had decided, she, not, not she didn't decide, rather, wrong. She responded to a call where Jesus says, you need to leave the city that you are comfortable in and go forward to a heavenly one. I am where the action is, and I am working in your brother's midst. And not only that, but I am calling you from a land and a language and a people that you are comfortable with to a place where you are uncomfortable, and I am going to be your prize when you get there. Raja went. She was in her, I think, 40s, 45 or so when she moved out there, and she began to learn Turkish. She began to build relationships in the community. She began to do this, that, and the other. She battled um, the issues that come with the alcoholism of her brothers. She battled the isolation that comes from not being able to speak the language of, of the people around her, um, of not having a whole lot of money, of, of this kind of thing. And Raja was absolutely instrumental in the first people to ever come to Christ in that province. Raja was the one, not us, not the ones who came, the, the ministry team, the people who had the resources, uh, the people who, had, um, who could go home at night back to Istanbul, back to our families. Raja, the one who moved in there. Raja, the one who was faithful. Raja, the one who went to the hospitals to meet with the people um, and, and, uh, and the, chai, uh, the chai, what do we say in this language? The tea houses where, um, where she went to meet with people. The one who embraced the discomfort and said, I'm going to be here because Jesus is here. She's the one who bore the fruit. So Hillcrest, will you be the church that bears the fruit by embracing your identity as strangers and pilgrims in this land, saying that you will only be fulfilled by a heavenly city that God is preparing for you. You will only be fulfilled when you find your home in Jesus himself rather than a destination on this earth. Would you stand and I just want to pray with you and Pastor Steve's going to come back up. Incidentally, I made it back from Afyon Karahisar. It required me to eat crow, and uh, Danny came and picked me up. It was a six-hour round trip for him in the middle of the night. And I got back, and there was a, an outpouring of supernatural favor, and the guy who processed my, my visa application the next day um, actually kind of fudged some paperwork for me, and I was able to stay in Turkey those last three months, and, and uh, we were able to conclude our time there well. It's a good story. I'll tell it to you another time. I want to just pray for you. So if you would just put your body in a posture of receiving whatever that looks like for you. Holy Spirit, you are the God of the journey and the God of the destination, both. And I thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, Father, would you send your blessing on Hillcrest and anybody joining in online as well that we would be people like Abraham and Sarah and the rest of the, 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 the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 who embrace the journey to a heavenly city. Would we be the people who recognize the value of the altar that we have access to, that the world doesn't have access to, but that requires us to, to carry a certain amount of social shame and, and discomfort by leaving the city gates and going outside where you are. In the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, I call on you to speak to every heart here in a personal way. To give them a vision, to, to illuminate their heart as to what change you're calling them into. 
as to what, what thing you are calling them to do. And Jesus, I pray that you would keep people on the path, that there would be a spirit of perseverance in this church, none lost, Lord Jesus, to the difficulty or the frustration or the shame of this journey, and all of them sharing in the fruit thereafter. And I pray in the name of Jesus that Hillcrest would be a multiplying church and a church that shines into the darkness and a church with permeable walls so that people would come in who need to come in and people would go out who need to go out. And that in all of this, that everyone here, myself included, that we, God, would find our home in you. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.